Well, we're in our second of a series a sermon in the series this month on bringing back the wanderer. And uh, I wasn't sure how many of you would return after last week, but I'm glad you're here. And uh, today we're looking at the sensual wanderer, and I'll explain that as we get into it. But we're doing that through the story of Samson. And that is in Judges 13 through 16. Now, I'm not going to read all four chapters or we would be out of time. Um, But I am going to read the very end of the story. And that's Judges 16, verses 15 through 31. And uh, so if you would listen carefully as this is God's word. And Delilah said to him, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times, and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day, and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart, and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees, and she called the man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to rejoice. And they said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their god. For they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, and on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And then he bowed with all his strength. And the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtael 
in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He judged Israel 20 years. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us to the book of Judges this morning to learn more about the heart of Christ for people of shame. Lord, we ask you this morning to give us the grace to understand the progression of sin that leads to great loss. In this passage, you give us words of hope, words of warning, and most of all, words about God's love for straying sheep. So open our ears to hear and our minds to know and our hearts to believe. And as always, give us the desire to learn from you this morning and bow our hearts to your authority. And so we pray, speak through the story of Samson. By the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. About seven years ago, I got a disturbing phone call. A man who wrote very deeply about spiritual things and matters regarding our denomination, very knowledgeable of the Reformed faith, considered to be one of the go-to guys on the subject of personal holiness, was removed from his church by his presbytery. His name was Ken, and this is his story. Ken was the pastor that others wanted to be. His church was growing. He was a gifted speaker and teacher, had a beautiful family, and all of a sudden, his life came crashing down. And I emailed him and asked, what happened? And in his reply, he said, Dave, I don't want to get into the details, but I went to a very dark place. Ashley Madison was a website that encouraged people to have affairs. And in 2015, a group of hackers got a hold of their membership list and published all the names. Ken's name was on the list. His presbytery not only removed him from the church, but eventually removed him from ministry altogether. They assigned him to another church and made him get counseling. But apparently, he couldn't stop. Within a year, his wife, with the support of both his new church and his old church, left him. But still, he couldn't stop. The other pastors in his presbytery... Many of us around the country met with him, emailed him, called him, all pleading with him to repent. But he couldn't stop. Eventually, he left the PCA. He left the Reformed faith. He went to a liberal Episcopal church where they celebrated alternative sexualities, which he came to affirm. <clears throat> Soon he gave up on the scriptures. He gave up on Jesus. And he embraced a progressive form of Christianity that had no need for the gospel. But apparently even that reminded him of what he had left behind. So by the end of his second year, he even left that false teaching behind. And still, he couldn't stop. Eventually, he got involved in every sort of gross immorality to the point of being arrested several times for the promotion of deviant practices that were harmful to others. And he was convicted and sentenced. And the night before he had to turn himself in to go to prison for 10 years, 
he drove down to a Gulf Coast motel and killed himself. Four years from respected Presbyterian pastor to sitting in the bathtub of a cheap motel with a 38 special in his mouth. All because he couldn't stop. It's a sad story. And it is all true. Ken was a modern-day Samson. Like Samson, he had all the advantages. Like Samson, he had been called by God. Like Samson, he was loved and respected. But also like Samson, he couldn't stop chasing pleasure. And like Samson, he lost it all. Because like Samson, he just couldn't stop. And as I was rereading the Samson story in Judges this week, I couldn't help but think of Ken. I mean, God made us to feel pleasure. So how does something considered to be a good gift of God get abused to the point of ruining someone's life? This is the story of Samson. It begins in Judges 13. But before we turn there, we need to define some terms. The sermon is entitled, The Sensual Wanderer. So what does that mean? We need to define sensual to avoid confusion. When I use the term sensual, it includes, but is not limited to, sexuality. That's what we usually think of first. Sensual is more than sexual. The word actually means pertaining to, inclined to, or preoccupied with the gratification of the body. The idea comes from the Latin word sensualis, which means of the senses. The pursuit of that which pleases the senses. <coughs> so a sensual person, then, is one who is consumed with indulging his or her own desires. And while it includes sexuality, it includes a whole lot of other things as well. We're going to look very quickly at five of them. First one is food, probably the most common desire of all people. And the desire for food is a good thing. You can't live without it. But it can become a consuming thing. Now, many of us fight the constant battle over our weight, myself included. And yet we live in a country where the CDC says 20% of children and 30% of all adults struggle with obesity. And in the last 30 years, those rates have been skyrocketing. And there are some physical causes, and there are some socioeconomic causes as well, but that's less than 10% of the people. When we have whole television channels dedicated to eating, we have a problem. Second, we have unrestrained entertainment. Americans spend billions of dollars to watch things on screens. One article estimates that over the course of their adult life, every single American will spend over $110,000 to be online. Not counting work, the average American spends seven hours a day online and three hours a day watching TV. Again, that doesn't include work or school. Another article estimates that 420 million people around the world suffer from an internet addiction, including 10% of all Americans and 75% of all high school students. 
many of whom don't even realize it. Internet addiction is defined as spending 30 hours or more a week on non-essential online activities, including gaming, shopping, gambling, and illicit sites. Neil Postman said it well 40 years ago with his book, We're Amusing Ourselves to Death. But we're also killing ourselves with other things, one of which is legal substances. What do we take legally that attract and exhaust our senses? It's actually a really, really long list. But the top two, uh, unsurprisingly, are caffeine and alcohol. 400 billion cups of coffee are drunk every year, making caffeine the most commonly used mind-altering drug on the planet. The daily recommended allowance for caffeine is 400 milligrams, or what you would get in one Starbucks grande. And that's enough to physically increase stress and cause insomnia. Now, the destructiveness of alcohol is well known. There is no social ill in our society that is not amplified by alcohol. The Bible even recognizes this danger with commands against drunkenness. So these are legal, if not uh, abused. What about fourth illegal substances? Over 25 million Americans use illegal drugs every year, and that number is going up dramatically faster than they can count. And this is a double-edged sword, because half the people use drugs for pleasure and to heighten the senses, and the other half use drugs to numb the pain of life. And God doesn't want you to pursue pleasure at any cost, nor does he want you to numb your life either. Ironically, drug use is increasing fastest not among the young, but among baby boomers, my generation. And the articles I read said that most of that is due to disillusionment with how life has turned out. And then finally, we have immorality. This is the one we expected. The scripture teaches that sexuality is a good gift created by God intended for pleasure and procreation within marriage, but when taken outside the lines that God has prescribed, it can produce highly destructive results. And the problem is no longer just sex before marriage. Our society no longer considers virtually any sexual behavior to be wrong. And what was considered abnormal or perverse even a decade ago is now being promoted by the culture and in some cases protected by the weight of law. If you want to understand the impact that all that has, let me recommend this book, Strange New World by Carl Truman. And uh, it's, this is the easier version. There's a more academic version, but it's still heavy. Uh, but it is enlightening. Now, obviously some of these categories are more serious than others. I'm not saying that drinking Starbucks is the same as using fentanyl. Uh, I am saying, though, if any of these categories apply to you, and you need to start being very careful. 1 Corinthians 6, the Apostle Paul says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Well, that wasn't true for my friend Ken. Nor is it true for the man known as Samson. Most people just know a few fragments about the Old Testament judge Samson. 
Long hair, great strength, Delilah. Samson is a sensual person who became consumed by his pleasures. And we're introduced to Samson through his parents. An angel appears to them in Judges 13, verses 3 through 5. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So Samson is raised as a Nazarite. In the Old Testament, Nazarite took vows, which meant they were totally dedicated to God. It meant no alcohol ever. You could never touch anything dead, because that would make you unclean. And you were not allowed to cut your hair for the duration of the vow which in Samson's case meant his entire life. All of which is to symbolize that you're totally dedicated to God. But what Samson did on the outside didn't reflect who he was on the inside. And so Samson serves as the classic case study of the sensual wanderer. As one who pursues his own personal pleasure at all costs, his life becomes a series of losses. And it starts with the loss of respect. Judges 14. The loss of respect. I'm going to move very quickly through Judges 14 through 16. As it's here that scripture chronicles the downward spiral of a once godly man. It begins with Samson being in a place he doesn't belong. How much sin in our lives begins with allowing ourselves to be somewhere or go somewhere or get involved somewhere that we know we shouldn't? That's the case here. Judges 14, starting at verse 1. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. First of all, he goes to Timnah in the land of the Philistines. The Philistines are the arch enemy of Israel. Samson is in the wrong place to scout for a wife. Second, from Genesis through Joshua, all the books that precede Judges, the teaching of the Lord is clear that one is to marry within the faith. They are not to intermarry with pagan peoples. Still, Samson could have walked away. Instead, look at the demand he puts on his parents. Despite having this remarkable upbringing and he has all the advantages, he displays this stunning lack of respect. The word respect means to show deference to a person of value who is worthy of honor. And parents should top that list, but they don't. The Bible doesn't explicitly say this, but it appears that Samson's parents have enabled his self-indulgence over the years. Even so, they try to persuade him otherwise, verse 3. But his father and his mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. And the results are tragic. 
Samson has no respect for God or God's law. He's not only violating the commandment to honor your parents and seeking a wife outside Israel, he's breaking the law of God. He has no respect for God's call. As Judges 13 showed us, God called him to save Israel from the Philistines. Instead, he's marrying one. Samson has no respect for his parents. He's essentially making unethical demands of them in order to please himself. And ultimately, he has no respect for himself. He's called and gifted by God. He's put in a position to bless others, but he only considers his own desires. It's the beginning of the end. And it all starts with the loss of respect. And as you can imagine, things just get worse. Because next we see the loss of control. Second half, Judges 14, the loss of control. His life starts spinning out of control because he can't control his appetites. Starting at verse 8. After some days, he returned to take her. This is exactly what it sounds like. He doesn't return to Timnah to win her affections. He doesn't ask or invite. He takes. He treats people as things to be used. And the sensual wanderer hears only one voice, his own. I want what I want when I want it. And on the way to Timnah, he's attacked by a lion, and he kills it and tears it to pieces. And now, some days later, he's going back there to take this person, and he sees the lion again. And we read, And he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. What's one part of the Nazarite vow? You could never touch anything dead because that would make you unclean. But Samson doesn't hesitate. He doesn't even think about it. And not only does he sin himself, but in giving the honey to his parents, he makes them ceremonially unclean. The rest of Judges 14 describes his wedding to this Philistine woman. In those days, they had a seven-day wedding feast. You thought your reception was long. At the end of the week, they'd be married. She would move into his home, and essentially they had a honeymoon at home. And as part of the wedding feast, Samson gives 30 guests a riddle. And for three days, his guests can't solve the riddle. So on the fourth day, they go to the bride. Verse 15, on the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Hope you didn't invite them to your wedding. Well, obviously that scares her, and the text says she pressed him hard for the answer, so he gave it to her, and in turn she tells the guests, and they answer the riddle. Well, now he has to give them the reward. He promised them a reward of linen garments and a change of clothes to each of the 30 guests. So what does he do? He goes to another Philistine city, kills 30 men, takes their garments, and gives them to the 30 guests. And then it says, end of verse 19, in hot anger he went back to his father's house. That's not where he's supposed to be at the end of the week. He's supposed to be in his own home with his new wife. But he's so angry he can't think straight. So the woman's father says, my daughter's marrying somebody. 
So verse 20, And Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. Now, if you think that's going to go over well with Samson, you're nuts. We have a loss of respect, a loss of control, but he couldn't stop. And so it's followed by another loss of control, Judges 15. Things go from bad to worse. We were starting uh, verse 1 of Judges 15. After some days at the time of wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. We bring flowers, they brought goats. And he said, I will go into my wife in the chamber, but her father would not allow him to go in. Her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her, so I gave her to your companion. And in a rage, somehow, Samson catches 300 foxes, ties torches to their tails, and lets them run rampant through the Philistine fields, burning up their harvest. And in retaliation, the Philistines burned down the house of the wife and his in-laws, killing them all. Now, out of fear, the Israelites go grab Samson and say they're going to bind him and hand him over to the Philistines. But when the Philistines come to get him, he breaks the binding. The Philistines are shouting at him, and he goes berserk. He grabs a fresh jawbone of a donkey. Remember the vow not to touch any dead thing. And he goes on a rampage, and he kills a thousand Philistines. And now completely exhausted, he makes a demand of God. Verse 18. He was very thirsty and he called upon the Lord and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. And shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? I mean, this is the classic, gee God, aren't you lucky to have me on your team? Now do something for me. <coughs> It's total disrespect. And my only surprise is God doesn't just strike him dead. But God has a use for him still. So he graciously provides water for him. But Samson continues to spiral out of control. So we have a loss of respect, a loss of control, another loss of control, and still he couldn't stop. And that's followed by the loss of strength, Judges 16. The loss of strength. We rejoined Samson at Judges 16, verse 1. Samson went to Gaza. There he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. The writer of Scripture is not surprised. Samson saw a prostitute on the spot, decided he had to have her. Two chapters ago, he saw a woman and went to mom and dad and asked for their help. Now he sees her, he went, he wanted, he took, he felt, he got. It's his new normal. And Samson, the sensual wanderer, continues to spiral down towards rock bottom. Now, we don't know what would have happened if somebody had gone after him. If somebody had confronted him, Samson, you're God's man. What are you doing? His actions indicate he probably would have responded, back off, leave me alone. I'm going to do what I want. But then the plot thickens. Enter Delilah. Judges 16, verses 4 and 5. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him, and see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, 
that we may bind him to humble him. And we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. And what follows between Samson and Delilah and the Philistines is this deadly game of cat and mouse. Now let me be clear. Men like Samson, men who use their strength to intimidate and manipulate women, are wicked. If the strength God gave you to cover and protect your wife and family are simply used to get your own way, you are living in darkness. Let me be equally clear. Women like Delilah, women who use the gifts God gave you to embrace the man you're married to or may be married to someday, and is instead used to deceive and manipulate, then you too are living in darkness. Which means that both Samson and Delilah are at fault here. And so from verses 5 through verse 19, we go through three rounds of this dangerous game of I'll give you what you want if you give me what I want. Until he shares his secret, which should have been no secret at all, not cutting his hair was part of the Nazarite vow. But no one knew that his strength depended on it. And now it's gone. And Delilah is neither shocked nor sad. The text says she began to torment him. But that's not the worst thing that happens to him. That comes next with the loss of God. The loss of God, verses 20 and 22. Like the prodigal son, some people insist on eating pig slop to see how bad it tastes. And sometimes God the Father lets them eat it to learn the futility of living life without him. Samson is raised to live for God. He has moved so far away. And yet, reality is he's never that far from the one thing he truly needs the most, God himself. But be forewarned, God will not be mocked. Galatians 6, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will reap from the Spirit eternal life. Samson will reap corruption. And thus begins the stunning final chapter in Samson's life. Verses 20 and 21, Delilah said, The Philistines are apart upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles and he ground, mill, and he ground at the mill in the prison. In the middle of this, we have one of the saddest phrases in the Bible. He did not know that the Lord had left him. He didn't realize it. He couldn't sense the vacuum where strength had once been. He didn't know the Lord had removed his power. And Samson's life has been reduced to grinding in the dark. And now, there's one more scene. And while it's a great scene, it's a very sad scene. And it all ends with the loss of life. The loss of life. It looks like Samson's going to turn things around. He cries out to the Lord, verse 28. Then Samson called the Lord and said, O oh Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O oh God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. 
And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one, his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the Lord's and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those he had killed during his life. Samson goes out with a bang, literally. In an effort to redeem himself, he sacrifices his own life. And thus ends the story of Samson. Let's think about this story. I want you to notice how this progression unfolds. Living for pleasure pulls you farther in, even as it's increasingly unsatisfying. It takes more caffeine to get your energy levels up. It takes more alcohol to calm you down. It takes more perversion to satisfy you. And all the time, your life is getting worse, and you're growing weaker. And the sensual wanderer is thinking, I'll get close to the edge of the cliff, and then I'll stop. I won't fall. Yes, you will. After more than 30 years of pastoral ministry, I can tell you what happens when you get close to the edge. Like Thelma and Louise, you hit the gas and you accelerate towards your own destruction. You see, the story of the sensual wanderer does not plateau, nor does he retrace his steps back home. If you are wandering from God into some form of sensuality, it's worse now than it was two months ago. Judges 16 is worse than Judges 15 is worse than Judges 14. And your life will be no different. Depravity feeds on itself. You may think, I'm managing my sin, but you're not. Your sin is managing you. And it's getting worse. Rock bottom is rushing up at you fast. And rock bottom is not a three-foot hole you step into. Rock bottom is a 3,000-foot drop from a cliff in the Grand Canyon. How's that going to work out for you? Not so well. Because physics tells us that you reach terminal velocity at 120 miles an hour. And you reach 120 miles an hour in eight seconds. See, gravity is not a sin management system. Gravity is not a lifestyle choice. Gravity is not a belief system. Your views on gravity have no effect on gravity. Your belief that you can defy gravity will have no effect on gravity. Gravity is reality, and the ground is hard. The loss of respect, the loss of control, the loss of strength, the loss of God will inevitably end with the loss of life. Just ask Samson. If I am hitting home with any of you, the clock is winding down, but it is not too late. It's never too late. With all your sin, with all your shame, all your defeat, all your addictions, it's not too late. However, you can't tiptoe your way out of being a sensual wanderer. It takes a radical turnaround that the Bible calls repentance. And becoming truly repentant means you have to grieve over your sin. Not just feel bad about it. Not just be sorry you got caught. Not just feel shame because other people suffered unjustly because of your sin. 2 Corinthians 7 warns us, As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. 
for you felt a godly grief, so you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Is it over for Samson? It sure looks like it. And it may seem that way in your life right now. But if you're here this morning, if you're listening to this online, then there is still hope. It wasn't too late for Samson, and it's not too late for you. Yes, he had his eyes gouged out. Yes, he's grinding in the mill, in the prison, in the dark. But that may have been God's greatest mercy to Samson, the sensual wanderer, because he can't see anymore. His eyes no longer leading him astray. His feet can no longer wander after sensuality. And in his mercy, God has essentially put Samson in lockdown. And so he has plenty of time to think about who he was and what he'd become. Did Samson ever repent? We don't know for sure. I don't think we're allowed to make that judgment. He's gone through this terrible downward progression of loss of respect, loss of control, loss of strength, loss of God at the cost of the loss of his own life. But God, two of the finest words in the Bible, but God has a phenomenal level of patience with sensual wanderers. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And therefore, God has one more loss in store for Samson, and that's the loss of shame. The loss of shame. Look, you and I both know there is a lot of shame in sin, sensual or sexual. And many here have felt the sting of that shame. And many more know of someone else, someone close, who is suffering under the weight of that kind of shame. But God can take away your shame. And God took away Samson's shame. After having spent the week studying Samson's wayward life, there's a verse that just takes my breath away. Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, we read, and what more shall I say, for time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Samson was a man of great strength, who was made weak. And it wasn't until he was weak that God used his strength. In the end, Samson proved the truth of the Apostle Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 12. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. If you follow God, he promises to never leave you or forsake you. He will never abandon you completely. Now, he will go to great lengths, great depths, to show you the things that you need to abandon, the things that you need to leave behind, the things that you need to forsake. That's part of the process of repentance. 
Sometimes God will knock you down to wake you up. But he doesn't stay away from those willing to repent. Repentance enables you to enter into a life with Jesus that tells a different story than the one shame wants you to believe. And when you repent and believe the gospel, he makes you a promise. Back to Peter again, 1 Peter 2.6. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And you can trust him on that. It's time to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. God, our Father, we bow before you and we confess our failure to repent of our wandering and to believe the gospel. Sometimes we act as people who think that our shame is too great, our loss is too many, our control is too strong, and our strength is forever. And then we minimize the great depths of your mercy and the great lengths of your grace. Forgive us for such foolishness. Grant that we may live as people who remember your grace and mercy, who remember your love and forgiveness, and who remember those people in our lives who think hitting rock bottom won't hurt. May we not turn our backs on them. Take away their shame, appease their guilt by your spirit, enable them to draw near to God so that he will draw near to them. And so work in each of our hearts as we learn from you this winter to bring back the wanderer and draw us ever closer to the one who has forgiven us and draw our wanderers ever closer to the one who rejoices to forgive them. Your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.